This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome Dr. Quincy Gideon to the show. Dr. Quincy is a clinical psychologist in Los Angeles and specializes in trauma care and related disorders, including postpartum trauma and medical PTSD, which I think are especially relevant for moms that are navigating the medical field, trying to conceive or have had traumatic birth experiences. Today, we are going to specifically talk about medical trauma or medical PTSD. Dr. Quincy's explanation of trauma as too much, too fast really helps give a better understanding of why seemingly normal things can produce a trauma response. We're going to discuss what causes medical PTSD surrounding things like fertility, infertility, trying to conceive during pregnancy and delivery, and how we can treat it. We will dig into the secondary responses surrounding trauma like lack of trust in your medical providers following these experiences or projecting this fear onto our children by over-researching and being anxious about their care. Most importantly, we will talk about how to move forward from these traumatic experiences and what you can do to regain control and safety. This is such an important topic that is rarely discussed, and when I came across Dr. Quincy's work, I knew it was so important for us to have her here. As many of my clients have had traumatic experiences in the medical field, and there are times when treatment by medical providers can become trauma. And what does that look like for us in the postpartum period trying to navigate motherhood while having these trauma responses? So this is going to be a really interesting and informative episode. And I feel like it even uncovered things for me. And I learned so much about myself even through talking with Dr. Quincy. So get ready, get your shoes on, get your pens out, whatever it is you do in whatever way. Let's hear my conversation with Dr. Quincy. Before jumping in, let's hear the iTunes review of the week. This review comes from Laura, Boss Mom of Boys, and it's titled, Keeps Getting Better. This review is long overdue, as I've been listening to Erica since last year. I find the speakers she brings on are so relevant to my situation as a busy working mom. There is something so validating about hearing that my struggles are normal, and it makes me feel so much less alone, especially during this last year and a half. Thank you for what I know is a ton of work to keep this podcast relevant, upbeat, and compassionate every episode. Thank you so much, Laura, for this review. I feel like you guys always pour out so much love and support. As always, the best thing you can do for a creator or podcaster like myself is leave a review on iTunes or share your favorite episode of this podcast with a mummy friend or parent because getting the word out there means everything to creators like me. So thank you so much for taking the time to leave this review and let's hear my conversation with Dr. Quincy. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Quincy, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Coordinating East Coast and West Coast is actually easier than coordinating me and like overseas, which sometimes happens in Australia. But again, thanks for working it in and making the time and being here with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. I stumbled across you on Instagram, which is generally how I find a lot of my guests. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I do live on, you know, in the Instagram world. But 
I was really intrigued by the trauma work that you do. Mm-hmm. And I'm so curious. We're going to dive into it today. We're going to talk about trauma as it relates to sort of motherhood, pregnancy, infertility, all of that. But I'm so curious, like, how did you come to hone in and niche down on trauma? Well, I have a personal story and history around trauma. When I was in college, I took a trip overseas and was working in Zambia, Africa, and spent the summer there, had a wonderful time, came back and immediately planned my next trip. And as I was going back, there were a lot of like medical mission, you know, things like that. But I was really, really intrigued by this idea of trauma. It wasn't just about the poverty that was going on. It wasn't just about the AIDS epidemic that was really sweeping the entire continent. It was also about the lived experience of trauma that prevented people from being able to access care, being able to advocate for their needs, being able to use the resources in their community to do something about that trauma. I was a college kid at the time and very overwhelmed by this idea of what the heck is trauma? (laughs) What are we Mm -hmm. supposed to do about it? And how is this college kid supposed to interact with it in any sort of way? So that really kind of started my journey. That kicked me into a master's program. So once I graduated with my bachelor's, I went into a master's program to be a counselor, a professional counselor. And I think I was in like the first month of that program before I was like, yeah, this isn't going to be enough. I want to do a doctorate. (laughs) But I went ahead Mm -hmm. and I finished that program and learned a ton. I was still working overseas. And so my history of trauma work really comes from a humanitarian aid perspective. It started there where I was working with a lot of traumatized communities and traumatized myself because of some of the things that I was experiencing and witnessing over there. And then coming back to the States and trying to learn some of the Western understandings of trauma and like shove them into a very African perspective of trauma, which doesn't work. It's not a good idea. But that really kickstarted my clinical perspective of trauma Mm. and how I like to work with people clinically. And so trauma has always been my game. I've never been an expert in anything but trauma. Yeah. (laughs) So this is like literally my bread and butter. This is what I do all day long. I love that. And as your business, like trauma, scary and different things, I'm like, this just is so, I love it. It's so necessary, especially when we're talking what some have called sort of this like collective time of trauma going through a pandemic and, you know, the times that we're in. Adjusting to motherhood can already be traumatic for some for a number of different reasons. Doing that in a pandemic potentially without our birthing supports and there's just so many levels there. And we are really good at minimizing and telling ourselves things are not traumatic when potentially they actually are. Yes. Can we start there? Can we define what trauma can actually look like, because I'm sure this is something that comes up for you in your practice a lot. Absolutely. So in the simplest terms, trauma is anything that happens too much and too fast. And that can be in any category in life. So if there's any sort of experience that you have that comes at you too much, like there's just the volume of content that you're having to take in in a split second time is just too much, or it's too overwhelming Mm. and it comes at you too fast and you don't have enough time to process in real time what's going on, that can constitute a trauma. And a lot of people experience trauma. Of the people that experience trauma, about 20% are going to have a reaction to trauma, a post-traumatic response. And that response is really what I look at. That's really how I intervene clinically. I'm really interested in the sort of collection of symptoms that happen in people that have experienced something that is too much and too fast. Mm -hmm. So if we think about the pandemic, too much, too fast. Our whole world shut down. All of our resources were sort of ended in some way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We had to get really scrappy. And for people that had had any sort of negative interaction with the medical field, suddenly we're having to really check ourselves. Do we trust the CDC? Do we trust the medical community? I've had these like really traumatic experiences, but now I'm having to really lean into something that I have no idea about. I'm not a virologist. I don't know how these things work, right? Like that in and of itself can be a traumatic event. So you've already had a trauma somewhere in your past. 
maybe in a medical interaction, and then more life comes at you and it continues to be too much, too fast, because your ability to be able to consolidate, make sense of those things, categorize them in your brain, that is diminished after Mm. you've experienced a trauma and you're not processing it. Mm -hmm. It's not just about physical things that come on too fast too soon. I'm hearing it's broader than that. It can be emotional things that come on too fast. It can be psychological events that come on too much too fast. It can be the way that you see the world and your sense of safety. It can be the threat of a virus that comes on too much too fast and your whole world changes and you don't have the current skills to be able to overcome that as quickly as you want. It's really kind of individual. So a person might have one sort of category of event, like a medical event that does not land in them in a traumatic way because they have skills in some way, or maybe they have a background, or maybe they have pre-existing knowledge or resources that really make that not that traumatic for them. But you put it in some Mm -hmm. other category and suddenly they've had like a big wreck, a car crash, or suddenly they've had like this big emotional shift, like a sudden divorce or some sort of betrayal or some sort of sickness that's going on. And now we've got something totally different. So it really just depends on a person's previous resources. What are they coming into that situation with? Which is a big underpinning of why what might be traumatic to me as a mother in like a labor and delivery situation or whatever versus what might be yes. uh, traumatic to another cannot be like equally weighed because we all come with different, Mm -hmm. whether it's wounds or whether it's, you know, experiences, resources, like you said, supports Mm -hmm. or whatever that, Mm -hmm. that kind of determine or contribute to our capacity in that moment to deal with that thing. Right. Yes. And I really want to encourage anyone that's in this space sort of wondering if it was that traumatic for me. I want people to have like a very expansive understanding of trauma because it's not just in that moment. It's the resources you come with. It's your identity. It's how you thought you would act in a certain situation. And then trauma happens and you behaved totally differently. That can really upset someone's inner understanding of themselves and really start sort of a chain reaction of who am I? Is this who I'm going to be? Especially in motherhood, I've longed my entire life to be different than my mother or different from what, you know, X, Y, and Z was, and now I'm not. Mm. There's just so much that contributes. It's such a personal experience that really determines whether something is traumatic and then what resources you have to make sense of that trauma in the aftermath. Okay. And we're going to go a step further and narrow it into medical trauma because I do have an episode and I'll link it in the show notes on birth trauma and we we unpack that a little bit. But I really want to come at this from a medical trauma perspective because this is something that I see with clients so often. How would we define medical trauma for those that are listening? So we just take that idea of trauma, it's too much, it's too fast, and we apply it to the medical world. Whether that is a medical experience you had, whether that is a diagnosis that you've had, whether that is an interaction with healthcare that you've had, or a collection of experiences, disappointments about how your body is working, right? Sometimes we feel like our bodies betray us, especially in fertility and birth traumas and things like that. So it's just the experience of trauma, and then it's applied to the medical field, the medical experiences that we all have. Mm -hmm. So a new kind of term has come out in the last couple of years of medical PTSD. A lot of people come into my practice because they've had things like long-term infertility issues. They've had cancer. They've had autoimmune diseases that no one could diagnose for years and years and years and chronic illnesses. And they come to me and they actually meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, but all of their trauma is really in the medical category. It all starts and ends there. They don't have a traumatic history anywhere else other than they've got these debilitating symptoms. They're going into their doctors. They're trying to get help. They're gaslit and told that these things aren't real. They're being told that they're psychosomatic. So this is just an emotional process that's coming out through your body. And they're told that they are in some ways crazy that they're experiencing these things. That's such a big one. This whole I've worked up the nerve to assert myself to a medical professional, an authority, Mm -hmm. which already might take so much in me to do, 
And then to be minimized or not yes. believed or gaslit, as you said. Yes. And then we start to like backtrack in and second guess ourselves and well, they must know. Mm-hmm. And it's a really tricky, like there's a power dynamic here that makes this very tricky. One of the things that I think is it really has to be addressed in some way, and I'm not quite sure how to do it because it's more of like a systemic issue in our medical system. But doctors or medical personnel cannot be the only gatekeepers. So if they are the ones that hold all of this medical knowledge, all of uh, the rest of us are sort of seen as inadequate because we don't have the same medical training or knowledge. We have our lived experience in our bodies, which is somehow not going well, right? Like we've got symptoms, we've got something that's coming up. We are walking into a doctor and we're saying, here's my reported symptoms. Here's the distress. Here's what's going on. And we are relying on them to be a safe emotional space. They're the gatekeepers for any additional care. There's something wrong with that Mm -hmm. because they hold too much Mm -hmm. power in that situation. And that medical record follows you. So some of medical PTSD that I have treated in my practice is just literally around the diagnoses that are psychological in nature that someone gets early on in their treatment that totally diminishes their complaints to every other doctor that they see in that system from then on because they've got some sort of diagnosis of emotional dysregulation or liability, or this is psychosomatic, or this is something else going on that is mental Mm -hmm. or psychological. And now they've got an extra ladder to climb in order to get the access to the care that they need. Yeah, this particular interview was inspired by one of my clients. Mm -hmm. And I know that she's going to tune into it. And I actually had a conversation with her about what are some of the things, you know, that we can review in terms of this interview and, and really putting this information out there, what would she want others to know? And like you were saying, she was fearful of a PTSD type of diagnosis going on her file because then Mm -hmm. there's already a distrust and a fear now that she's had this challenging event Mm -hmm. in the medical system and she already feels like she will not be taken seriously Uh with her symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then if there is a diagnosis of PTSD or she is to, you know, trial a medication that confirms anxiety or PTSD, then everything she worries will be dismissed as, like you said, psychosomatic or related to anxiety. And there's already a distrust now in our word being taken seriously and then add that on top of it. Like you said, that extra rung or that extra hurdle to have to try to overcome. Yeah. So there's kind of two different parts of this power dynamic that really drive me crazy. And I'm making it my goal to like change it in some way. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. But the first is the gatekeeper, that there is a power differential of a gatekeeping person that is not psychologically trained. Right. And so the natural, I think, human response is to dismiss, to gaslight, to say this isn't real, whatever. And so the medical community needs extensive psychological training in order to be, I mean, if you are going to be the person that someone comes to in their distress, you probably need to know how to respond to distress at at the very basic. Yeah. Sorry. I'm going to pause for a second. I'm drawing such a parallel here because this reminds me of I grew up in like an evangelical background and Same. there were people would go to pastors for and, and you know go to your pastor go to your spiritual counsel for you know spiritual things but um, for mental health related things mm-hmm. and the right. more trained I became and the more I started to specialize in my field the more I was like they cannot like they can't be the gatekeeper right. they can't be the be all and end all right. in these areas because they're not trained and I'm seeing that parallel in what you're saying here is like We're going to our physicians who are trained in, you know, physical ailments, you know, primarily and, you know, additional some mental health training or depending on your physician and what they've specialized in. But I see exactly what you're saying where it's like they don't have the training to come at it from like a psychological or emotional perspective. And in a supportive perspective. Mm. My second point is we have a long, 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 long history of not believing women. Mm. So when they show up to the physician and they're trying to get some sort of care, we cannot ignore that we've got thousands, if not more years of history of women not being believable. 
We are histrionic, we overreact, we're too emotional, we're hormonal, we're all of those things. So not only have we now encountered a gatekeeper that is not trained in addressing psychological issues or supporting someone in their distress over legitimate physical complaints, but we've also, we're showing up as women And we can't get around that socialization unless we have an enlightened physician or MD in front of us that is chronically checking himself or herself Mm -hmm. (laughs) in these ways and learning how to get over some of those old, old socialization patterns of women are hysterical and can't be believed. Hmm. This really brings to mind now dealing with like BIPOC women Mm -hmm. going into these scenarios because not only are they carrying their own trauma and likely hypervigilance and distrust in white providers, providers generally speaking, there's just an added element. And then like a woman of color coming into these situations, there's just like layers of trauma there, I feel like, that make it hard to navigate the medical system rightfully so when we look at our mortality rates around women of color in childbirthing situations and otherwise. So yeah, I see the challenges and I see the need for change. And and I think that this is going to be a really validating conversation for those who are listening because I've worked with a lot of clients who feel that they must have been, they must have done something wrong in a situation. Like, that's right. Because of that power dynamic, or because we're taught that doctors and physicians and OBs and whoever must know, mm-hmm. then we gaslight ourselves in the end, don't we? Yeah. So, one of the biggest neurological responses that any person, there is no exception to this, this is a nervous system biological response. The number one thing that we are going to try to do in the face of trauma is to avoid future trauma. And so one of the ways that we do that in any trauma, this can be trigger warning here, sexual assault, this can be medical PTSD, this can be getting in a car again after a big car crash. There are lots of ways that in any type of trauma, your body is going to gear itself towards avoiding a future trauma. So you're trying to learn a lesson. You're trying to pick apart what happened. And truly, truly, unless we are, you know, emotionally intelligent enough to be like, that's on the trauma's part. I did not do anything to start this trauma. This is not my fault. I do not accept. I do not consent to being blamed for the trauma happening. Unless we're doing that, one of the things that we're going to do to try to avoid a future trauma is to blame ourselves. What did we do wrong? Mm. Did I over-exaggerate my symptoms? Maybe I'm not that sick. Maybe I'm just sad and depressed. (laughs) Maybe, I mean, we just do it all of the time. But this is a huge neurological push inside of us to avoid a future trauma. We don't want to go to another doctor and experience that. Again, we want to figure out what we did wrong so that Mm -hmm. we never have to go through that again, so that we can fix ourselves. And in trauma... When you feel like everything else is unfixable, right, then we try to fix ourselves. Mm. And when other people gaslight us and say, well, you should have done this. You should have done more research. This person had terrible reviews online. Why would you go to them in the first place? It doesn't matter that your insurance took them. You should have paid for more. When all of that happens, that lands in our tender spot of like, yeah, mm-hmm, I agree. I agree because I already believe that about myself, Mm. right? I already believe that about the ways in which I should have done something to manage my trauma before it became a trauma. So the hypervigilance that comes on after is really a function of our nervous system and our body trying to prevent us from ever landing in that position again. Right. And there are times when we might be able to avoid certain things right. and that might be okay and adaptive. And then there are other times where we have to function and live our life and it really interferes and gets in the way. And in the context of this medical trauma and in the conversation I was having with my client, she was explaining like, not only do I want to not go to my own medical appointments that I still have these ongoing chronic pains and mm-hmm. things to sort through, but then I also fear the system for my children And then I I find I project those fears and that hypervigilance onto my children. And then I'm like over-researching and and needing double opinions. And there's just this very Mm -hmm. overtaking, overpowering Mm -hmm. hypervigilance that comes about around anything medical related. Yes. And this is very similar to any time there's a trauma. 
there's avoidance, there is all kinds of tactics that we put in place to try to become an expert in this, right? Because we don't want to feel this way again. We over-research, we make sure that we never walk down that alley again, right? If we had a scary experience there, like that's what we do. Because human beings are, for millennia, our job has been to survive, not necessarily thrive. So it does not help us thrive to never go to the doctor, right? And to overly research and feel anxious about every medical appointment. But does it help us survive? Yeah. Mm. And that's what we're bent towards. Until we get into a place where we feel relatively safe within our bodies, within our relationships, within our support systems, then our job will continue to be surviving, It's when we start feeling safe. It's when we can start advocating for ourselves. It's when we feel like we can interview doctors and empower ourselves in that way in order to create safety that we can get on with the business of thriving. We can get on with the business of like, okay, now I can tell you about everything that's going on with me because I trust that you can respond to me in a healthy way. Yeah. But until we feel safe, surviving is all that we can expect of ourselves. And that's okay. Mm right? We, we have to find safety. There is no formula out there that is going to get you to the space of thriving without the very, very important aspect of safety. It does not exist. Safety is your primary goal <laughs> in these situations. And how then, and this might be a big question because this is like what you do in sessions and sessions sure. of therapy, sure. <laughs> right? right? But how do we go about cultivating and finding that safety? Well, I think that everyone has personal spaces that can cultivate safety. And that's really what I do as a therapist. And I think that that's what a lot of mental health support can do, is really talking with you about your specific experience of trauma, what happened, what made it feel unsafe, what feels safe to you, and really creating more spaces for that in your life. So that's just sort of one step. But overall, I think that a trauma survivor or someone that has a lot of medical trauma, I really think that your job is just to be asking yourself the question of, do I feel safe here? And what would I need to feel safe? Mm. So if that's going into a doctor's office, do you need an extra couple of minutes in your car? That means you need to leave a little earlier so you can sit in that parking lot and you can deep breathe a little bit and you can remind yourself that you are good and whole human being deserving of every respect that the rest of us get. And do you have a couple of questions? Do you need to write that in your phone? Do you need to write that on a piece of paper? You need to do whatever you need to do so that you don't walk out of that doctor's office without some sort of answers to those questions. Mm. So it kind of happens in these like small incremental daily tasks. Do you need to call a doctor's office and ask for something? And then you get off the phone and you feel dysregulated and overwhelmed and you didn't get what you needed. Can you pick up the phone and ask for that same person again and say, it's really unhelpful when you speak to people that way? Mm. I asked for this. I didn't get it. And there was also lots of ways in which you were telling me that I was wrong to ask for my own medical records or my own billing records or a referral or whatever. Right. Do Can we pick up the phone again and do that very short 15 seconds of bravery that we need in order to advocate for ourselves, empower ourselves? Can we do that? And we don't need to do it all the time. We just need to do it some of the time, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. lots of us that have trauma will come at the world in a perfectionistic way. We'll say, okay, now that I've decided that I'm going to advocate for myself with every doctor, I have to do that every moment of every day. And that's not true. You need to do it 15% of the time. And then we'll work our way up to 30 Well, I think that's a big point you're touching on is like, I think that sometimes when we feel like we've been a doormat mm-hmm. or we feel like we've not been heard... Mm-hmm. Sometimes our pendulum can swing to a very, not assertive, but more aggressive stance where we feel we have to over advocate. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't really do any good or or move us further along in really getting our needs met because then we're resistant or kind of like aggressive with providers, which can gridlock us as well. That's right. You know, in some ways, it's just sort of feeling in charge of your own body and the words that come out of your mouth because. If we can just slow down, 
If we can just, wait a minute, I asked a question. I still don't feel like it was answered. Can we go back to that? If you can just allow yourself some space, typically some of that like anxious, fast, 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 move quickly. Let's get through this. I don't want to do this anymore. This is awful. This is awful. Get me out of this doctor's office. If we can just slow some of that down, Mm. a lot of the time we can create safety in very small ways. And that matters. That counts for our nervous system. That definitely helps to to stop that erratic sort of ramping up that can happen in a trauma response. Yeah. When I think about asserting ourselves and having the confidence to ask for what we need to feel safe, there is this piece that I feel like ties in where we have to feel worthy of that Mm -hmm. or, you know, entitled has like a negative connotation but you know like we have to feel deserving of that and that is some core places to start I think right it is I find that those that have experienced trauma are more likely to have sort of these big questions of what do I deserve in this world because if I deserved a trauma Do I deserve healing or goodness or whatever? It really shakes up a person's internalized understanding of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that is one of the ways that therapy can be so helpful is addressing, you know, this event happened and it seems like it fundamentally changed what you believed about the world. Is the world good or bad? Are people good or bad? Do they have good intentions or bad intentions? Mm -hmm. What happens if you let go of control, hypervigilance, all of those things, then bad things happen. What do you believe about yourself? And how that impacts what comes at you in the world, right? And these are all big spiritual, theological, psychological questions, relational questions. Mm -hmm. But they deserve to be addressed because in a split second of trauma, it all changed for you. That's what trauma does. It changes fundamentally how you see yourself or it lands right on a tender spot of what you suspected Mm -hmm. about yourself. Like you didn't deserve good things. People are bad, right? Trauma will kind of get into any of the cracks that we have psychologically and really shakes up a lot. Or the worst case scenario does happen to me, right? right? It, It confirms all anxieties we maybe previously had. That's right. Yeah. And again, that's about survival. So if you can question yourself, we think that we have a better chance at surviving the next trauma that comes because we'll have, we'll know all of the different facets of it. But that is fundamentally not what trauma is. Mm. Trauma is that upsetting event that you couldn't see coming. You couldn't have processed it quick enough. And it is typically horrific, Mm -hmm. right? It was never meant to happen in that way. And yet it does because that's what life is. That's how it happens. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. 
With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. Can we talk a little bit about the body response and the body interactions? Because I think that a lot of clients that I work with or people that I speak with think that their anxiety or their body response or their flashback can be a premonition or can, you know, Mm -hmm. it it tells us to flee. Like that's what it's wired to do. But now we've got this overactive sense of threat. And Mm -hmm. can we unpack those body things a little bit? What happens? How do we kind of know whether to trust our body after trauma? Like that's a big piece of this. Okay. So I am passionate about nervous system work. This is like my favorite thing. And I think it's one of the most empowering things that people can do after trauma. So, and I actually have a, a masterclass on it. It's free. If anyone wants it, I teach for like an yeah, hour long we'll link masterclass. It for but sure. here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm um, so, it, this is, this is what I think is the most empowering thing for anyone that's been through trauma. We have three primary nervous system responses we have a nervous system response that says we are safe and social. And in that space, we can take in information. We can hear nuances. Things don't feel as personal. We feel invested, but we also feel empathic towards other people. This is where we want to be a lot of the time, but it's not realistic to be there all of the time. We want to at least be able to get back there. But trauma really puts us in two other nervous system responses. One is that sympathetic nervous system response, which is activating and panicky and overwhelmed and your body feels like it's on fire and your armpits are sweating and your heart is racing and you feel like you want to unzip your skin and get Mm. out of it. That's the sympathetic nervous system response. And that happens when we perceive danger. So this is trying to give us the energy to do something, to change the circumstances, to get up and run. This is our fight or flight response. It gives us additional energy to do something about the threat, the danger threat that's here in front of us. And then we have our much older part of our nervous system. It was our first response that came out of our evolution, and it's the dorsal vagal response. And that is more of a collapsed, helpless, playing possum Mm. sort of response where things like our nerve endings, our pain receptors turn off a bit so that we don't feel pain as much. We are dissociative. We are disconnected. We are in that collapsed, helpless space right? We're not even running. We are totally frozen and our bodies are trying to do the work that we need them to do to feel less pain of the, what we imagine to be the inevitable death or demise. And we have that response when we sense life threat. Mm. 
So there is safe and social, there is danger, and then there is life threat. So I think that people can feel really empowered to know what exactly are you feeling right now? Because trauma will move you between danger and life threat. And sometimes we get stuck in that wheel, Mm -hmm. right? We're overactivated and then we collapse. And then we're overactivated and then we collapse. And then we are panicky and full of ideas and rushing, rushing, rushing. And can be a little obsessive compulsive even in those spaces, perfectionistic in those Mm -hmm. spaces. And then we are totally helpless, hopeless, depressed. Nothing's ever going to change. I'm going to feel like this forever. Right. And we can kind of cycle Mm -hmm. through those things. And that in and of itself can be traumatizing for people. So part of the empowering thing around nervous system work is just really knowing what is the response that you're in most of the time? What are your symptoms in that space? And what do you need to do in order to help yourself move towards safe and social or ventral vagal is the nervous system name for that. Yeah, it makes me think about you said dissociation, and it makes me think about those who've experienced trauma and things that pull us out of the current sense of safety and pull us out of the current moment, being more prone to, like, I think of dissociation on, like, a spectrum and things right. of zoning out and tuning out and numbing and escape. Mm-hmm. Is that a piece mm-hmm. of this as well? It's totally a piece of it. So dissociation is definitely on a spectrum. And on our nervous system, it's a polyvagal ladder is what we call it. But in the nervous system response, there is, oh, we're getting into that collapse space. We're moving further into it. I haven't gotten off the couch in six hours. I've been zoned out in Netflix binging and can't even remember when I ate my last Mm. meal. Or I'm totally depersonalized. I don't feel like myself. I lose whole hours of the day. I'm not tracking with anything and feel very helpless to change that. So even in the different nervous system responses, we can have sort of a scale or a spectrum of responses. But the idea is to be able to say, what has gotten me here? What am I feeling like is so threatening in this moment that there's a life threat, that my body has sensed that the way to get through this is just to collapse Mm. and wait for the danger to pass? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, and I'm applying it to so many even different pieces in my own life where I can see times of this cycle, and it's Mm -hmm. just really interesting. I mean, and Mm -hmm. you would know as a mental health provider as well, like everything we go through and we learn, we also go through ourselves in terms of internalizing and healing and taking it all in. So it's really interesting to think about. And that, that shutting down that you're talking about is, again, just like that more hypervigilant is serving the purpose of trying to lessen that pain and keep us safe. Like that's the function of that behavior. Yeah. So hypervigilance can really fall into two of the different categories. It can be that anxious, overactive, trying to get out of the way of danger, right? Like the trying to find the doctor and researching everything. That's all, There's a lot of energy there. It's kind of panicky in nature, lots of extra energy. That's how you know you're in sympathetic. And then when you go to that doctor or if you are researching and you reach the end of the list and you haven't found a good candidate, you might collapse mm. and feel hopeless for a few days around it and have a hard time, you know, kind of crawling out of that space because these responses are, again, connected to a traumatic event, right, that you're trying to prevent. And so if you're feeling helpless to actually prevent that future trauma for happening, that can really put us into that collapsed okay. space. So hypervigilance can kind of be both. It can start as that panicky space. And then if we can't do anything about it with all that extra energy, that can start to feel very hopeless and will collapse into a different nervous system response. Can we talk about, this is like a little bit of a sidestep. I'm here for it. How perfectionism is tied into trauma because I've heard perfectionism being referred to as a trauma response. But Mm -hmm. as you're describing some of these behaviors, I see them very interwoven into perfectionism. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can we unpack that a little bit? Sure. Sure. So perfectionism in my clinical experience and in my personal experience falls really uh, heavily in that sympathetic, panicky, overactivated space. 
It is increased energy around believing that you could achieve perfection and therefore avoid future pain or hurt Mm -hmm. because the pain or hurt that you once experienced was so overwhelming that it's now become your full-time job to avoid it feels like that smaller t trauma it feels like a more day-to-day not so earth shaking but still the same pattern the same pattern of behavior yeah one of my favorite books in trauma is from surviving to thriving by pete walker i think he does a really wonderful job at articulating the behaviors behind the different trauma responses and he does a good job at explaining that the flight response so fight and flight are in that sympathetic overactive you've got a lot of energy and fight you're ready to like throw fists and like protect yourself temporarily and in flight you've got a lot of energy to get away from and he really helps us understand that in chronic little t trauma right that happens over and over and over it's not these big one-time events but these smaller traumatic events that happen over time that accumulate over time that those can also create a flight response And what's most likely to happen is not that, like, I got to get out of here. I'm running away from everything. It's that obsessive or even compulsive, behaviorally compulsive space, perfectionistic space, where we must be busy all of the time in order to avoid our internal experience. Mm -hmm. So now we're running away from ourselves, our self-concept, what our feelings are, what created that trauma, the relational dynamics. We are fleeing from that. And he really puts perfectionism, overworking, workaholism, chronically busy, overcommitted to a lot of projects, never any downtime. Mm. He really attributes that to a very embedded flight response from chronic or complex trauma, those small traumas that happen over time. So interesting. So interesting. Oh, my gosh. That's going to be a bunny trail that I'm going to go down. (laughs) Please do. It's fascinating. It's so fascinating. And maybe this is something – this could be a whole other episode potentially because we talk about those early childhood experiences. And so much of this Mm -hmm. podcast and and my platform is on parents who are devoted to parenting differently than they were parented. And when we Mm -hmm. step into motherhood, Mm -hmm. we also step back into our past in a way that we never expected. Right? So, so many of us are reparenting ourselves through these little T and potentially big T traumas as Mm -hmm. we're trying to work ourselves out in and parent these little human beings. So there's probably the vast majority of this audience that can relate to those early childhood life experiences that I think shape our value system and how we want to parent differently And that's a whole conversation of how we do that in a way that is not holding tight to our trauma, but is like working towards thriving, not living out of that trauma response, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime there's perfectionism, I always wonder what is it about your feelings, your internal state that you need to get away from? Mm. Because it's the outwardly busying yourself in order to not allow internal sensations to come up and be apparent mm-hmm. to you. That's how I really imagine perfectionism for most it's people. It's fascinating. And I mean, in many ways, as a child or a young adult or whatever, that really serves you for a time in the system, in the family system that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know... But then yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. You want to yeah. adult. You want to feel. You want mm-hmm. to have intimate connections. You want to not be burnt out and slow your life down, you know, these types of things. Right. Well, I think you're bringing up the point that we're always talking about in trauma is that trauma tells you how to survive. So that's how we survived our childhoods. We got perfectionistic. We got busy with trying to fix everything that's going on around us because the internal state, there was no parent or there was no healthy space to be able to actually feel like we could work through that, right? So it must be avoided Mm. and we just get on with the business of surviving. And now that we're in adulthood, there's a lot more freedom to establish safety, understand your trauma and get busy with thriving. Mm. But we've got to be able to make some of those big steps, you know, towards our feelings, towards understanding what goes on inside of us and really accepting those things with like loving arms, the ways that we would with our own children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating to me. 
another piece and maybe one of the final pieces that we'll work through that I hear clients bring up a lot is, so you have the medical care system, whether it's an infertility or pregnancy or labor and delivery that we might experience trauma with, but then there can be um, an unexpected postpartum experience like postpartum depression and anxiety or some other PMAD that goes unnoticed, doesn't get adequate treatment or whatever. And then there's this real sense of just having to survive mother, like we're in survival mode. And and this is, it's mm-hmm. relating as you're talking about surviving to thriving. Part of this platform is being able to enjoy motherhood. Like how do we mm-hmm. not just yeah. sit in our, like not get the treatment that we need, how to sit in our postpartum depression mm-hmm. and, and self-loathing and really think that it's us and not recognize that it's depression. And how do we move out of these spaces into a more thriving space? And so as you're talking, I'm thinking that that experience in itself in the postpartum can be so traumatic for some, that unexpected challenge of those mental health pieces that nobody really talks about, nobody really prepares us for. And then we end up in just this constant survival mode a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that one of the the things that I've seen be most helpful to postpartum mothers that are in that struggle and experiencing a lot of mental health questions and experiences and symptoms that are coming up in that space is choosing the path of ease, whatever that is. If that means getting extra support in some way, if that means taking longer breaks from your kids and not feeling like the guilt that comes from that, if that means going on medication Mm. for a short amount of time, that you can take a pill in the morning and that does more for you than any other self-care that you might be able to do in that day, that for the season of postpartum, when you are overwhelmed, everything else in your life is already hard, Mm -hmm. right? Sleep is hard. Daily schedules are hard. Screaming babies are hard. uh, Your body is hard. Putting on pants is hard. Going to the bathroom is hard. Everything is hard. So just choose the path of ease for Mm. a season. (laughs) And there's no shame in that. If I do anything in my career, it is I want to give mothers the permission. And I I sort of want to like elbow anyone out of their sphere that might be shaming Mm. them for picking the path of ease. Because it's the best thing that you can do for you, your baby, your family, your relationship, your mental mm-hmm. health, your recovery. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because I can and do say that to clients. And as a recovering A-type perfectionist, to hear mm-hmm. go the path of ease brings up a ugh, response in me because yeah. it feels like an easy way out. Like it feels like and, – and this mm-hmm. is what I hear a lot of moms say is – I should be able to X, Y, Z. Oh, yeah. They're going to should themselves. Right. I should be able to keep up. Everybody else can do this. I should be able to do do this and whatever. My mom did it this way or my mother-in-law this. And you're so right that when everything is hard, it's that inner mothering of ourselves to stop and have some compassion and say, it's Mm -hmm. okay to take a break. It's okay to do something. Yeah. Like adjust your expectations of yourself today. It's okay to adjust according to your capacity in the day. Maybe today you'll have time and energy for that and maybe you won't. And so I love that go, the path of ease. And I think there was a time I would have been extremely resistant to that idea. Sure. And I know that it's worth working towards being able to do that, if that makes sense. Yes. I will also say that for postpartum mothers that are coming into my practice, they've had a traumatic event or the postpartum experience has felt traumatic Mm. in some way. And we're kind of working through that. I find that there is these statements of like, well, I should be able to do this. I should be able to do this. Millennia of mothers have been doing this. So I should be able to do this. And I always have to sort of stop them and say politely, Mm. I disagree. Because whomever you're pointing at in your circle and you're saying, that's the goal, and why can't I do that, I respectfully ask you to ask harder questions Mm. of them because they're not Mm -hmm. doing it alone. They're not doing it the way that you imagine them to. They are probably very stressed out. They just put on mascara today, and that (laughs) tricked you. And 
you know, we may, we maybe shouldn't attribute overall mental health to the ability to shower. Right. Right. When they show up to something. So I respectfully disagree. And actually that sort of becomes our like little laughing thing that we can do when I start hearing them kind of get in that shame cycle of like, I should be able to do this. And eventually my patients will get to a place where they sort of like giggle to themselves and they're like, I know, I know you respectfully disagree. (laughs) And because it's just not true. It's It's just not not true. true. And behind every one of these picture perfect Instagram moments or whatever, there Mm -hmm. is mess shoved to the side. There is food caked on the floor. There is, you know, a slew of things going on behind the scenes that we are unaware of. So... I've really appreciated this. We've kind of taken our own path in through medical trauma and other pieces, (laughs) but this is so relevant and I know it's going to be so encouraging for so many moms. So if there's a couple like tidbits that you might want to leave moms with who have either had like infertility challenges in the medical system, have had Mm. medical trauma, or are left feeling traumatized, generally speaking, by their entrance into motherhood, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What might be some either places to start for them or encouraging words for them. I love the idea of 15 seconds of bravery, Mm. that sometimes that's all we have to have in order to ask a question and empower ourselves or to get, you know, sort of collected again before we move on into the next doctor's appointment or make the next phone call. So I think if we can just sort of break it down, you don't have to be brave all day. You don't have to like slay this medical beast tomorrow. You just need 15 seconds of bravery. And maybe that starts with the question. I have gotten in this habit. I'm in my own infertility journey. I've been in here Mm. in this for years. And I've gotten into the habit of saying to a doctor as soon as they walk in, I say, are you in a space where you can be supportive today? Because this has Mm. been hard on me. And that almost automatically sort of primes them a bit to lower their hackles. Um, I've even had a doctor say, well, not really, but I can get there. And now we laugh about it. And I say, well, thank you. I really appreciate that because every time I'm in here, you give me bad news. And I feel like I'm like, you know, totally helpless and hopeless in all of this. And today I just need you to be supportive, which is not to not give me bad news. It's just to perhaps be aware that I'm a human over here that goes home and has to process this trauma with my therapist for weeks. It's such an important piece of information that you're sharing because doctors have medicalized, like they they live and breathe these things, just like Mm -hmm. I might live and breathe Mm -hmm. crisis intervention or like other things that not that I become numb to, but I just don't always understand the importance to the other person. So when they Mm -hmm. live and breathe these numbers, these charts, these conversations all day long, there can be a disconnect of them understanding Mm -hmm. what your needs are. And by that 15 seconds of bravery, by saying like, I need you to be in a supportive headspace with me. It brings them Mm -hmm. back online in a way that, you know, ignites their humanity for that appointment. Not that they've lost it. It's just not Mm -hmm. always front of mind, right? And I find that it changes the whole appointment. I get a little bit more time. There's those like very meaningful questions for me at the end. Like, can I answer anything else for you? Do you feel like you know what your next steps are? I mean... I went years without having some of those questions asked for me and I would leave and feel anxious and go get in my car and cry and be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to, who am I supposed to call next? What's the next step? So I really think that those like small little moments of advocacy and then take that 15 seconds of bravery and apply it on your way home. What do you need to do for yourself in 15 seconds in your driveway before you walk into your house? How can you share that with your partner? How can you maybe reach out to a friend or some sort of social support? Like, what do you need to do to get out of the lonely space and into the space of feeling supported? Mm -hmm. That is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, sharing bits of your experience, your time here with us today. Where do you hang out online? Where can people find you? Take in all your things. Well, you can always find me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Quincy. My name is spelled weird. It's with two E's at the end. So Dr. Quincy on Instagram. 
And I have kind of three different prongs of my work life. I have a private practice in Los Angeles or California. I have an online um, community, a trauma community, where I teach people all about things like nervous systems and trauma responses and maternal mental health when things have gone tragically wrong. So you can find all of that. Just go to my normal website, which is quincygideon.com, and it has a link to all of those different arms of the business of getting women healthy. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes and the blog posts that will come from our episode today. And I feel a nervous system episode coming on one of these I'm days. In. So <laughs> I'm in. I will walk you through it. This it's like teaching. I'll have a chart. It's I wonderful. Love it. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. My pleasure. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything me. I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.